This episode of Warp 5 is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your smartphone, tablet, or desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. Hi, I'm Anthony Montgomery, Ensign Travis Mayweather on Star Trek Enterprise, and you're listening to Trek FM. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Warp 5, our dedicated Enterprise show. I'm your host, Norman Lau, and thank you for joining us once again in the conference room aboard the Annex L1. And for this episode of Warp 5, this is going to be a special episode because I am really pleased to change the opening sequence that I just talked to you about because there's going to be an addition to that line of dialogue, and that edition is co-host, because it is my pleasure to give a Battlefield promotion to Will Nguyen, our content coordinator for Trek FM, and now co-host for Warp 5, and I can't thank Will enough for all of the help that he's given me ever since I started Warp 5 last December 2014, and he has been my right arm my number one, if you will, and has just helped me drive a lot of great content into the show and just has been very uh, influential in terms of how the show goes. So I think he's blushing. You can't see this, folks, but I think I just made Will blush a little bit. But thanks, Will. Welcome on the conference room of Warp 5 as our new co-host. Well, uh, thanks, Captain I must say, I do feel bad for the whoever, the poor crewman that died, <laughs> so I could take his or her place. Um, but it, you know, I really appreciate what you said, Norm, and it's just a pleasure, and and it's fun doing this. I think doing this, you have to have fun with it. So I just recently discovered Enterprise myself through a comprehensive rewatch, and just seeing it through. The first time there's a lot of enthusiasm and there's a lot of new angles that you see. So it's just fun for me to to, to express that to, to the viewers, I mean, to the listeners every week. So it's my pleasure to be here and hopefully I won't die. So someone else will get a battle for promotion. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to uh, being in this spot for a while. So, well, you're that's funny because you're mentioning what the uh, the the rank dynamic from the mirror universe as uh, an officer is axed off another officer takes his place so but no um in all seriousness folks um it takes a lot of effort and a lot of dedication and passion to craft an episode as hosts we have to take a look at what we not only have done but what is still 
important for us to talk about and for you to be engaged in as our listeners. And for this episode, Will has taken a look at the library of back episodes and proposed an idea to me. And he said, Norm, what do you think about the other captains not named Jonathan Archer? And which I spun around and said, quote unquote, do you mean the Archer Rands? <laughs> and yes, that flat note is exactly how my joke went over with him, like a lead Zeppelin <laughs> or like a depolarized warp coupling. I have uh, a very but, restrained sense of humor, Norm. The joke went over really well. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> the the $5 is in the mail. So, but uh, no, Will, um, he came with this idea to me and uh, wrote a fantastic episode. And let's just jump straight into it. So let's talk about not just Jonathan Archer as captain of the first NX-01 Warp 5 capable starship for Earth Starfleet, but the people that surrounded him, namely the captains that were waiting in the wings and how they helped inform Archer prior to him launching in Broken Bow. Right. So presumably Starfleet has many other captains and you see Captain Ramirez in uh, the episode that sets off the Zindi arc. He's captaining the Intrepid. He fights off Duras and helps out the NX-1 as they return to space. So you do see the existence of other captains. But, you know, because it's the first ship and because he's the first captain of the first deep space ship, you rarely see him interacting with any other captains. Usually it's only with Admiral Forrest. But there are two captains that I thought talking about would be just phenomenal because it, it helps to flesh out the universe in which Enterprise is in. And that's A.G. Robinson from First Flight and Erica Hernandez, who's in a series of episodes in the fourth season. So we're going to start off and talk about A.G. Robinson because chronologically in the series, he uh, appears first. And it's it's an episode that actually builds a lot into the mythos of Enterprise because arguably it's the premise that they originally wanted to go in, in terms of being on Earth before the first Warp 5 engine. What were they doing to, to get to that point? And it's a really insightful episode because it's it's you know it's a typical flashback so you're learning a lot about archer before he became captain and the the premise of the idea is the premise of the episode is archer receives word that ag robinson who is now a captain has died climbing mount mckinley and he's recounting this um his experiences and his memory of ag robinson to to paul and you flash back and you realize that although they're friends, they're very competitive friends. And in all of our lives, we have that one person or maybe uh, a few people that we're really close friends, but we also know how to push each other's buttons. We know how to be competitive around each other. We know how to, you know, there's, there's that person that always kind of pushes you, although, you know, you love them to death, but sometimes they just get on your nerves and they'll just know how to push your buttons. And in first flight, A.G. Robinson was that person to Captain Archer. At that time, Commander Archer. And the reason why they were so competitive is that they were competing for the same job. They were both test pilots. They're both commander rank, and they're competing for the most prestigious post in Starfleet. Who's going to pilot the first ship to break the Warp 2 barrier? And it's very much... Um, I think, Norm, you mentioned before a lot of the right stuff 
is mm-hmm. ele- is present in first flight. So, you know, it's like Top Gun and NASA in space and it's very much the, the, the there's a there's a there's a space jockiness to it where, you know, they're friends but when it comes to to flying, when it comes to the cockpit, that friendship is put, you know, is put aside. So, I think this episode's important because it shows you the development of Archer through Robinson. And Robinson is He's he looks older than Archer. I don't know if he's significantly older, but he looks a bit older, and he has more of a impulsive streak. I would say he knows how to push Archer's buttons. And I don't want to do a full episode review, but basically they're competing. But Robinson gets a slot to do the first flight to right. break the warp tube barrier, and he actually succeeds. He actually succeeds momentarily, but then he realizes. That there's a problem with the engine, and he's forced to, and he's uh, forced to eject. And before he was forced to eject, he says, "You know, I can hold it. I can hold it. I can hold it." While Archer, who's actually at flight control, saying, "Hey, you gotta eject. You gotta eject." He kept on pushing it and pushing it to the point where the ship was actually lost, and that he was he had to eject, but at the loss of the ship. And uh, an important piece of context here is the engine that was in that warp two um, flight was the engine that Archer's father, uh, Henry Archer, had built. So there's a lot of that paternalistic dynamic, too. So when they come back to, to Earth and they do a debrief, you know, Robinson never faces up to the fact that it could have been pilot error and that he was wrong to push the engine past the safety limit that actually ended up destroying the ship. And he ultimately intimated that Actually, maybe it was a faulty engine that not only was it a faulty engine, your father was the one who built this faulty engine, the same father that you've been living in the shadow of this entire time. So the fact that he was able to kind of jab that knife into Archer, knowing that that's something that has been bothering him living in his shadow, I think is very indicative of the relationship that the two had. So... What are your thoughts on this, Norm? Uh, like I said, I don't want to go through a full episode review, but from the initial introduction of AG and how he plays off of, of Jonathan, what do you think of what they did with him? Well, I, I love the fact that this was done in essentially a two-person play, and it was done in two people between Archer reminiscing about his fondness about the NX program with DePaul and discussing his memories of, of AG, and then... The second uh, part of that play would be Archer and A.G. uh, themselves. And going back to why we're talking about this particular almost captain is because the one thing that I really took away from A.G.'s dialogue is how he told Archer the reason why you weren't chosen is because you're too by the book. You're too rigid and you're too up to the code. And trying too hard. Right, you're you're trying too hard to encapsulate the the nobility, this intangible quality of what a captain is, where we're going out into a dynamic that needs fluidity, that needs to be able to shift dynamic and be more reactive sometimes than cautionary and rules following, if you will. So that's what I liked about those two, because you really did see that. Um, in Keith Carradine's just incredible performance as AG because he is a little bit older, he is a little bit wiser, and you do get that 
big brother dynamic between AG and Jonathan Archer. And it, Jonathan Archer just can't stand it because there's always that person in your life, whether you walk into a party or you walk into a bar or they're sitting right next to you in class or they're on the same team with you, no matter how good you are, they're just that slightly bit better. And you just don't know why. And AG sums it up perfectly when he said, you're just holding on too tight. You got to enjoy what this is all about. You got to enjoy where you are, the experiences that brought you here and the people that you're working with, because eventually these people are going to be out in space with you and they're going to have to live or die at your command. And you can't do that by basically being a walking textbook of what a captain should be. So it's amazing how much that imparted on me in this 48-minute episode because this could have been the best relationship over the course of 22 episodes in the theorized season one that Brandon Braga originally wanted to do. Yeah, I agree. And you don't really see a lot of that Starfleet training aspect, which is why I think it's so interesting. Because, you know, we don't know the reason why Archer became, uh, you know, the test pilot. We don't really know the motivations outside of the fact that his father was the Warp 5 engine creator. And he was he was the progenitor of this entire project. But the motivations for Archer, even from season one, it's it's not as specific as you think it is. And this episode is really the only time you really get to see a lot of that early that early introduction. And you're exactly right, Norm. The ability to adapt is important. He's saying that you are trying too hard. The ability to adapt in a situation is important. And the important thing here is he was right. When he said that it wasn't his fault, but it was, a, it was a problem with the engine, he was actually right. So obviously, Archer takes offense to this. They get into a fight. They have to break it up. The Ar- I mean, the Admiral has to break it up. But when they go back and look at the telemetry, when they go back and look back at the engine, it is something with the engine that is wrong. It wasn't pilot error. And of course, this is also introduction to, to then-Lieutenant Trip Tucker. And he says, you know what? I can fix this. But the Vulcans put a kibosh on it. They're saying humans aren't ready. And the two, in, in, in not that predictable, not, not predictable in a bad way, but in a predictable, predictable in a good way in terms of they put their differences aside and they work together. And they're saying, you know what? If we work together, the three of us, so Archer and Robinson and now Tucker coming in to kind of fix the engine, we can show them that we can make it work. And then we're going to force Starfleet to not kowtow to the Vulcans and make sure the program isn't shut down. So that's exactly what happens in the episode. They manage to fix it, but this time Robinson actually gives Arch the seat. They take the the other ship, the NX Beta, the other ship, and he gives him that spot, and they're able to break the barrier that uh, Robinson had broken before, but also the speed barrier that he had broken too. And you know that relationship that they're able to work together despite you know their competitiveness, despite their their differences there is still a bond there and we don't we can only surmise from this episode that whether it was uh really a a mentor relationship or they're more contemporaries although i like to think that they're 
kind of in between is that he's slightly older than Archer. He's probably a mentor in a lot of ways, but at the same time, I think in a lot of other ways, they're in direct competition as evidenced by this episode. And I think it's unfortunate that we never see Robinson again because he dies in this episode. And then he has that, uh, that fitting tribute when Archer's looking back to him. But I think he is definitely someone that could have been a character that the season one was, was uh, season one could have been built around and he could have been a recurring character down the road when he had uh, his own command or when he had another role in Starfleet command and it would further flesh out Archer's backstory because I think up until this episode and even beyond this episode, we don't see much of that anymore. Well, one of the things that's interesting to point out when it comes to AG's and Jonathan's relationship, it's it questions Archer in terms of his motivations. Why is he there in the program? Because in previous episodes, especially our Archer two-parter, one of the things that I brought up as an observation is Archer there for himself or is he there for his father? Right? Because that's one thing that you really see at play here, especially when AG criticizes the engine. If Archer was doing things in terms of trying to propel the Warp 5 program forward, or in this case, the NX program forward, he would have seen uh, all of these details, the telemetry, the issues with all of the data that was coming in from AG pushing the engines, he would have seen that with less judgment on AG and more critical thinking on why that particular speed failed. He wasn't seeing it objectively because he's there, I believe, for that issue of fatherly pride. You know, I'm here because my dad created this engine, you know, with the help at one time of Zephram Cochran and all of his engineering advice. And I have to represent this family because of this man. And sometimes I felt like whether I like it or not. And that's why I think that AG had a little bit better approach to this program, especially being groomed as a future captain, because AG is about getting out into space and being an explorer. Jonathan Archer is in this program because he has to protect the legacy of his father. That's the way I saw the reaction, the bristling that Archer had when it comes to any single time that the warp engine is being criticized by anybody. Absolutely. By trip, you know, by trip or by the Vulcans or whatever, because he has this prejudice that's built inside of him because of the way the Vulcans treated his father he has this resistance against any criticism and this bristling against any criticism because of the way that he takes pride in his father's work but all of that comes to bear when it comes to seeing the true identity and the motivation of why archer is going through this command track and that back to the original point is an observation and it spurs more questions on was Archer the right person for this job or was he just the best person for this job? Those are two completely and separate, in my opinion, points because you can be the most talented person and not be the right person. 
Or you could be a person that has more potential, but not necessarily the polish. So who was AG in this equation and who was Jonathan Archer in this equation? Yeah, I think it raises an interesting question if AG ended up being captain of the NX-01. We know from Broken Bow, though, that he wasn't considered the final two. It was between him and Gardner, who later becomes an admiral. And we really don't see much of, of Gardner except in the Mirror Universe in that one episode in Mirror Darkly. But that, I think that's interesting, the fact that he was selected to be the NX Alpha pilot. But by the time of the NX-01, when the Warp 5 engine was ready to go online, he was actually not one of the two finalists. It was between him and another, uh, the original test pilots that didn't make it in the cut either. It was Gardner. It was Gardner and Duvall in addition to Robinson and Archer. So I think it's really interesting that he didn't make that final cut for whatever reason. And if he was captain of the NX-01, you know, it, it's hard to extrapolate from a sample size of one episode. But we're going to do it anyway. I think uh, from what we see, you know, he, he was probably someone that was more adaptable, but also maybe a little bit more aggressive or more impulsive than Archer, in my opinion. I think he'd have taken a more aggressive tactic towards a lot of the threats they faced. I think I think Archer was going really out of his way to show humanity's best, uh, put humanity's best foot forward because he had this legacy to keep intact and because he wanted to keep uh, to keep true his father's wish that you know humans are going to be explorers. I think Robinson potentially wasn't so wedded to this idea that he was all about getting the job done and you know if that forced him to be a little more aggressive or brusque or less diplomatic then so be it but obviously that's something that can only be extrapolated from but I think it's interesting to kind of surmise that if he was the NX-01 captain, uh, how certain events would have played differently. But I also think it says a lot that he was originally slated to be the NX-02 captain. So when the NX-02, the Columbia that we see in Season 4, is launched, he was actually supposed to be the captain for the sister ship. But unfortunately, he uh, passed away. But that's going to bring up another topic of Erica Hernandez. But before we go there, do you have any other thoughts on, on AG? You know, the interesting thing about the way that AG was, that, that he met his ultimate end, was climbing a mountain. And it's funny how Scott Bakula's performance and reminiscing about AG and kind of projecting, you know, where AG was right before he died, like preparing to climb... Was it Everest? It was Mount McKinley. McKinley. That's sorry, Mount McKinley. Preparing to climb Mount McKinley and saying, you know what? He did, even though he died doing this, he did exactly what he wanted to do. AG always did what he wanted to do. And I saw the progenitor of the cowboy diplomacy captain in AG. Somewhere along the lines of Kirk. Mm-hmm. Because AG knew that he had to address whatever what he confronted out in space head on. Yes, of course he would have the training of Starfleet Academy in 2151 or prior to 2151. He would have the training of the NX-01 Beta, Alpha, and probably one more test program. He would have all of this information that he would be able to use if, in fact, he were the first captain 
of the NX-01 of the Warp 5 ship. But I can see the way that he would have approached, say, the aliens that they found in Fight or Flight when they found the Axanar. It would have been really neat just to kind of mentally project what his reaction would have been versus Archer's reaction. And if he were that captain, would Hoshi have been his comms officer? Because now you're dealing with his choices. Would he have wanted somebody who was this on-record rules breaker that Hoshi was because of her poker game that got her drummed out of Starfleet? Or would he have found somebody who was, I don't know, something a little bit more suitable for his taste? Would he have brought Trip on? So these are neat things to you know to think about to extrapolate on, but that's a really good point. Um, yeah, because the captains get to choose their crew. That's right, and, and yeah, he had such a personal relationship with with Trip, and he had such a personal relationship with Hoshi. That's a really good point. And at the same time, he was the one that personally selected Travis to be his helmsman, right? And it's interesting to to extrapolate to see whether those opportunities would have presented themselves, and if. AJ would have brought on different people. But this actually reminds me of, of just a larger larger point of what we can glean from the NX program from the first flight, but also from AG, is that I think it was also a missed opportunity to show how Starfleet could be. So I mentioned earlier that this episode was very much, you know, the right stuff, NASA, Top Gun, that type of dynamic which is very familiar as a touchstone to a lot of viewers in American TV. But if Starfleet's supposed to be Earth Starfleet, it been really it was such a missed opportunity for them just to have Archer, Robinson, Gardner, Duval. Ostensibly all males. I think they're all American by the last name and they're all white. And I think if this is truly uh, the, the global Starfleet, it'd been really interesting to see Starfleet as a combination of an American space program, but also a Russian space program. Chinese space program, Pakistani space program, in the same way that Star Trek, the original series, would end up being, where they had a Japanese helmsman, they had uh, a Russian tactical officer, they had that, they had that connection. And really neat to see that not only was Archer competing with his friend, but he was competing with, you know, Starfleet, but from other jurisdictions, Starfleet from other areas. They all, they brought their own expertise. For this episode, I think it was a missed opportunity to really show uh, the diversity that a global Earth Starfleet would be as opposed to something that's just extrapolated to be a future space American, uh, an American space program in the future. So unless you have any other further thoughts on that, Norm, I think this is a perfect segue actually to, to talk about uh, Erica Hernandez. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's the one thing that you and I have always talked about either on air or behind the scenes in, uh, in our Facebook threads the opportunity to show greater diversity uh, and gender equality and racial equality, especially when you had the means to do so in an era that I think was looking for more of that. And that was during when they were writing Enterprise. Because now you have, I think, by and large, a, a more diverse tolerance for characters, for female characters, for racially diverse characters for xenophobically diverse characters, you know, or, or, um, what am I, you know, for basically you had other species, different species, you know, um, to be represented in this show. And yes, of course you had your opportunities there with T'Pol 
and with flocks. But remember, Archer chose them based on the circumstances of him being there as captain. If AG was still captain or the captain's choice, it could have been very easily an all-human crew. And that's a show that we still will get to. What if T'Pol and Phlox, the only two alien beings on that ship, were never chosen to be part of that crew? So, but, do you, but that but, being said... But do you think Archer actually wanted T'Pol on the ship? Because I, because T'Pol was pretty much forced to be put on that ship. I think she was there because the Vulcan High Command really did like sticking it to Archer a bit. Yeah. You know, and I maybe AG was a little bit more diplomatic in that sense. Yeah. Whereas they wouldn't have had such personal conflicts between you know between archer archer and the vulcan high command obviously had an issue because of the way that he felt that his father was always in some way slighted by the vulcans i don't think ag had that and i think ag probably would have been a little bit more sensible when he was looking at clang and saying hey um i have my doctor ready Please download all your information, flocks, to his medical bay, and we will take it from here. I just think that he's a little—he was a little bit more pragmatic like that, you know, in certain ways. I think Archer, and we're all realists here. We know that that was the—it was written the way it was written to to get the uh, the story moving in Broken Bow. But if we were placing kind of like the real time factor here, which we like to do, I think that there would have been a completely different dynamic, and we we would have had an all human crew on AG ship. Uh, based on the circumstances. But talking about the diversity of what this allowed us, yes, we had the opportunity for Captain Erica Hernandez to sit at the captain's chair of the NXO2 Columbia. And this raises a really interesting point that I brought up with you earlier because we have to pay attention to the last episode of the original series Turnabout Intruder, when it comes to referencing the first female captain in 2151, because in Turnabout Intruder, Dr. Janice Lester, she basically declared probably one of the most charged lines, not only in the original series, but all of Star Trek, as it informs us as the viewers to female captains. And Dr. Janice Lester said, your world of starship captains does not admit women. She said this to James Kirk at the very beginning of the episode. What does that mean to you, Will? Uh, long sigh, because I think there there are two issues here. Two issues is it's, it's a meta perspective, but also the in-universe perspective, right? So the meta perspective is it was the 1960s. That's a show from a 1960s mentality and a perspective. Clearly a concept that is very foreign to us, as it should be of women being on the bridge or being starship captains, which is interesting because in the pilot, the cage, the number one is a woman, right? Correct. So TOS is this is such this unique, such a unique perspective because it has so many contradicting elements to it, right? So, uh, and, and just just to interject here, that point that you made is incredibly important because if something happened to Christopher Pike, number one would be in command. Correct. That's right, because it okay. was Gene Roddenberry's original intent to have the number one be a woman, but he got pushback from NBC saying that, well, I don't think the viewers are ready for that, so he had to go back and change that. So I think you get these contradictory elements, right? So on the one hand, clearly this is something that should not be an issue in the future, right? Of course, women could be starship captains, be any role that they want to be, right? 
But at the same time, there's because we're Star Trek fans and we love doing this to ourselves is we try to explain everything. You know this, Norm. Norm, you're laughing, but you know it's true. Like, explain. No, it's true. I, I'm laughing because I'm agreeing. Everything, right? And and that's, yeah. it's, it's, as with everything, it's, it's a, it's a double, it's a double-edged sword. It's some, you know, our greatest strength is our greatest weakness. The fact that we connect everything and tie things together is great, but at the same time, sometimes there's, there are only so many loose ends you could tie off into a bow, right? So I think this is something that, is probably going to have to be in that category where like you can come up with whatever rationalization for you to actually justify that comment making sense later on that you know the 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 life of a starship captain is so demanding that he can't have a woman in his life he, she's not saying that a woman can't be on a starship bridge a lot of you know logical contortions you're putting yourself in a pretzel to justify something that can't be justified because it was never intended to be justified later on right so i think it was right for for erica hernandez to be introduced and i think in a lot of ways if fans want to see this as an inherent you know rejection of tos or a continuity error as some would say i think you just have to face the fact that although in canon enterprise comes for tos in the real world Enterprise was made decades after TOS. Not everything's going to mesh up. And this is something that you just have to kind of resign to the fact that this is, you know, that was an old TV show decades ago. Of course, they had some backwards ideas on things, and you just have to accept it for what it is. Well, it's still possible, you know, as we explain away things, that the the, the one word that really charges the statement is admit. And... In my head, Canon, I wrote down a couple of notes, and one of them was starship captains' lives are so inclusive to running a starship. Their their responsibilities, how they have to basically... You're going for it, Norm. You're going for it. I am. And it's it's almost like what, what Christopher Pike said at the very beginning of the cage. You know, he's like, I'm, I'm tired of being responsible for all these lives. I'm tired of making all these decisions that people would live and die on a daily basis. Does that Does that validate that word? Or does... It really mean what it meant in 1969, where there were there was no admittance for females in the captain's seat. And for some, I mean, okay, yes, I mean, when people listen to this episode, they're probably going to have their own version of this. But I firmly believe that Gene Roddenberry wouldn't have done what he did with Star Trek and allow that line to mean what it meant. I agree. And I know that there, you know, I know that there were a lot of issues with how he was involved with season three, how he was relegated to more of a producer status de facto at best because of the issues that he had with the networks. It wasn't his control anymore. It really wasn't his vision in a way anymore. It was just kind of like a continuation of a very popular property and marketing arm for NBC and for Desilu. But if I believe that Gene had this vision of having racial equality and gender equality on this starship, then by that rationale, I can't believe that her statement means what it means. Yeah. So you're viewing it from the perspective of admit meaning allow. Like your life does not allow. Your right. life does not admit any other distractions. Well, there's another quote there, and I just wanted to kind of like bookend what that first quote was with something that was done later on in the episode, what she said to to Dr. Coleman. She said that, I love the life he led, the power of a starship commander. It's my life now. She's talking about his life. 
She's talking about his position in Starfleet and what that what that does for Captain Kirk, how it feeds him, how it actually feeds her, her ego. In many ways, she said that she was his equal. She said to him, you know, we should have we could have been roaming the galaxy together. We could have been in each other's lives. And then Kirk says we would have killed each other, you know, and how this relates to Hernandez is that Archer and Hernandez had a relationship prior to him going out in command. So obviously that's a little bit of a parallel dynamic, but not nearly to the extent that Lester took it. But in my opinion, she was looking for the power in that lifestyle as opposed to saying that she would never be admitted to that lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah. So. I think that's a fair point. And uh, we're going to get to actually talking to Erica Hernandez, everyone, but I think <laughs> there's a, there's a couple more points I actually want to make about just this overall issue. We do actually see a female commander, a captain, in Enterprise Incident. She's a Romulan commander who is female, who commands oh, the sure. ship. Yep. Which I think is, is yes, yeah, she's not Starfleet, but I think that's important, the fact that she played that authoritarian, uh, that uh, leadership role. And you see uh, a female starship captain in Starfleet, Rachel Garrett, in yesterday's Enterprise. And then you see very briefly in the voyage home, at the very beginning, the captain of the USS Saratoga, Played by Madge Sinclair, who would later play Geordi's mother right. uh, in Next Generation as a female starship captain. So I think there are enough touchstones within the overall Star Trek universe for for everyone to, to understand that you know the gender equality is an important piece of it. But there are elements of early iterations that can be a little troubling when you think about it. But I think overall when you look at the entire body of work and how it's represented, I think it's safely, you can safely say that gender equality is definitely something that's at the top of the list or something that would not be so easily dismissed. Mm-hmm. But in terms no, of Erica Hernandez, I'm glad that you brought up uh, home, which is the first episode she's introduced in norm. She's introduced there as Archer's previous love interest. And she plays an important role in showing the humanity that is still within Archer and helping him reconcile his reservations after the entire Zindi campaign, right? So home mm. was very much similar to family post best of both worlds. We need to take right. a breather from the action. What's happening to our characters. And Hernandez is that perfect character because he, she is from his past and they've shared a relationship. They share a bond and she can tell him things that trip can't. She can tell him things that Hoshi Travis Reed can't, you know, she can just say, you know what, you need to check yourself right now. Is this who you really are? You know, this is who I knew. This is whom I think you should actually be and who you actually are and that you're losing yourself. You need to find yourself again. So that was a good introduction. But in other episodes, most notably the two-parter, Affliction and Divergence, I love the fact that she goes beyond just Archer's previous love interest. Mm Mm-hmm. Because in home, I don't think it's ever alluded to the fact that she's a captain or she's actually going to be the captain of the NXO2. I think she's just another Starfleet officer, a high-ranking officer, because she's at his debriefing. But I love the fact that down the road in the fourth season, that she is the captain of the NXO2. And there really isn't another reference to the fact that she was Archer's lover or girlfriend or fiance in the past, that she is her own woman, that she has agency that she is just as capable to command the starship right so i just love the fact that we see that 
from the next introduction from the get go is that you remember her from the previous episode, but they're not way they're not relying on her past, her connection to Archer as a crutch, which is often used with female characters is that they're always in relation to a male character. They're the love interest or there's something that the male character utilizes as opposed to being a character with her own agency. Well, I believe that in home and uh, I apologize for correcting you on this, but um, when Archer was taking a tour of the Columbia and it's just because it informed a lot about how Archer changed in front of Hernandez. He said that I asked Admiral Jeffries for more weapons. Remember that scene? Yeah, and, you're right. Oh, you yeah. got me, Norm. You're right. I do. He's all like, I'm going to need a hell. You're, you're going to need these more. and a hell of a lot more. That's right. Yeah. And that's where it starts kind of like Hernandez's critical analysis of Archer from, from when he you know, stepped off of that shuttle pod and addressed everybody at the, um, the welcome home ceremony. She knew, I think, inherently that there was something different. And I think that she wanted to understand the depths of Archer's change because she is going to be exposed to that type of situation herself. And I know that we're, we're going to focus on Erica Hernandez here, from the from actually from the information that we know about Archer because it's going to be Archer's logs that help Hernandez to grow because when Archer said you know captain's log I've experienced this captain's log I experienced that this is what's actually going to shape her in the future and that's an interesting thing to see when it comes to looking at new captains how much of them are you seeing in those instances versus how much of them are trying to draw upon the experiences of previous captains because they need the experience, but they also need to be their own independent leaders. And what I like about Hernandez is that she's very independent in her thinking, but she's also smart enough to know that the experiences will help her make the most informed decisions possible. And I think that's probably where AG was a little bit, hey, you know what? I'm just going to kind of do what I feel is right. I'm going to do it by instinct. I think that Hernandez is just a little bit more, she has a little bit better perspective on it because of possibly all of the logs that have been forwarded onto her, maybe through Starfleet or from Admiral Forrester, from other sources, as you know, she has a lot of clearance as a captain. But um, I think that also allows her to make better judgments on how her ship needs to be modified for her to go out in space because it's kind of like getting your own car. You know, you can get the car off the lot, but then, it, you know, with a couple of adjustments, it's your ship. You know, it's your vehicle, your crew, your decisions. And learning what she learned from Archer allows her to be a little bit broader based in her perspective. I agree. And... I think it's very interesting that she's the captain of the Annex 2 but she's never, in previous episodes, she was never referenced or never hinted that. It's being the captain of, of the next Warp 5 deep spaceship is, is quite the honor. It's quite a prestigious post, right? And we know that previously Gardner, who was competing with Archer and Robinson to fly the Annex 01, I mean the, the uh, Warp Alpha ship or... Uh, NX Alpha ship. He would end up, actually end up being Admiral later on. He would also consider it to be a finalist for the NX01. Duval would end up captaining another ship. 
And there was jokes between him and, and Tucker about, you know, good thing we're light years away from that, that they actually gave him a ship. But there's no reference to Hernandez within that initial group of pilots that were supposed to be the finalists for the Annex Alpha. So I think it's very interesting that Duval got a ship, but it wasn't the Annex 02. Gardner just got promoted up to Admiral. Robinson eventually was supposed to be the Annex 02, but he, he passed away. So they went to Hernandez. And I think I think it's interesting that she was able to ascend this very competitive post while not having any other references beforehand. And I think that speaks to the fact that she's very capable in her own right, the fact that we see that. And she may not have been part of the boys club, as it were, in the 602 club, but the fact that she was still competent, that she was more than uh, fit to kind of fill those shoes. And I just think I was just watching Affliction and Divergence, the, uh, the episodes that follow home, and I just think it's a fantastic soft reboot in a lot of ways because when you see the NXO2 there and when you see Trip being transferred over to that ship because he wants to to get away from T'Pol, he wants to get away from the NXO1 and he meets with Hernandez, it's almost like they could start off an entire new storyline. They could start off an entire new season. They could. I would love to see the NXO2 series. Like I would I think Erica Hernandez, Ada Maris, who's the actress who plays her, is strong enough to carry a show unto herself. Like I would absolutely watch, you know, a different version of Enterprise with Hernandez as captain. Because there's, you know, from the few episodes that we see from her, there's a lot of determination. There's there's a she has a wry sense of humor. I think she has that balance to make a very compelling captain. And I think I was struck when I first watched the Affliction, how much of a the potential for a, a jumping off point that episode was. The fact that Trip was leaving, they're they're almost they're kind of handing off the baton a little bit, just saying that this is a different crew, this different ship. It's familiar in a lot of ways, but it's also different. And I think that speaks to the fact that the Enterprise story isn't necessarily just about Archer and that first mission that other people can follow in his footsteps. There are other iterations in a way that other Star Treks, you don't really have that passing of the torch in that same way. You don't have Picard passing off to the, you know, the 1701 D, but like the 2.0 version, right? Coming up, right? Mm -hmm. you, you have such a, it's the way enterprise is set up. It, it's such a, I almost I, I liken it to actually the Marvel universe is that you can expand it to so many other captains because it's so new. The possibilities there are so new. Each ship is the is part of a small line of ships that you could really tell stories that branch off, but they overlap with each other. That you could you could have I think Hernandez is a strong enough character that you could have an entire season or half season of primarily focusing on her. You also see elements of the NX-1 and Archer. But the fact that you could spread out your characters amongst these different crews and different ships and tell overlapping stories, I think the Enterprise universe allows that to happen in a way that later on I don't think happens uh, as much or in the same way. Well, I think one of the things that Manny Cotto was trying to do in Season 4 was trying to get back to the original appeal of the original series. And that was that kind of like that gender and ethnic diversity. I mean, it really is neat that you were able to kind of um, have
have that encapsulated with Erica Hernandez, female A, Latina B, you know, and uh, part of the NX program because she was groomed to be a captain of one of these top Federation starships, a warp-capable ship. And I think that's where eventually Brandon Braga wanted to take the show if he had actual true creative control over season one because now you can actually start dispersing all of these different characters and all of these different uh, storylines or mini arcs in that first season where you would see all of the candidates or possible candidates from the NX-01 program or the NX program and how they went their different ways after Archer was chosen as captain because then Hernandez could have been within the scene somewhere in season one. She could have been in Starfleet Command working on the Columbia because the NX-01 was nearly completed because we always like to have seen the launch of the NX-01 at the end of season one or the, the theoretical season one that we wanted to, do, wanted to have seen. But she could have been there and she could have been a really good, not only a romantic interest for Archer in that way where you just feel that there was a past between those two, but also a really good foil for him where she could basically be a nice breath of fresh air perspective on when Archer was being Archer, when he just couldn't get out of his own way. He couldn't get out of his own mold because you can only do that so much with one character. And AG would have worn himself thin if he kept being like the guy, like get kept pushing Archer. You're doing it wrong. You got to try things differently because that's, that's the one thing that everyone still loves about the original series. It's Kirk, Spock and McCoy. What if in this instance, it was, Archer, Robinson, and Hernandez. It's a bold choice, right? That these these secondary characters would come in, but I think that's the strength of Enterprise is because you had characters like Shran, who was such a strong supporting character, who knew who we knew was going to play a larger role if the series had survived. And you bring up a really good point, Norm. The way they structure Starfleet, the way they they've introduced all these other elements of Starfleet, these other captains, just begs for a scene for them to meet in a conference room on the NX-01 or another ship or on Starfleet Command or another planet where they have to work together. They work together in Affliction and Divergence. And I think it it hints the potential that they can begin to to branch out from this universe, right? They're beginning to explore other elements and have cross-pollination. And I was just, you know, I just thought of this right now. In the season three with the Zindi arc, when Shran actually comes in and, and helps or kind of quote-unquote helps Archer secure the Zindi weapon. Mm -hmm. It could have been written away where instead of Shran being sent on an enduring mission, it could have been the NX-02 rushed out to help the NX-01. It was refitted in a certain way that they were able to catch up to to Archer and the ship, and that's Hernandez. And she's the one that is assisting Archer near the end of that entire campaign to help him. They could have interwoven her in, in those spots. And obviously, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, and they didn't plan it out the way they wanted to, but you could just see that that character, they're laying the groundwork that if there was a season five, season six, season seven, that she was going to be there. And I would have liked the fact that I would have liked to have seen Trip actually stay on the NXO two, maybe not indefinitely, but a lot longer than he was uh, in those few episodes when he requested to come back. Like, it would have been fantastic if he had stayed there and see the dynamic on that different ship to see what, how he would operate in a different environment, how she would react to that. And 
I think, like you said before, it does speak to the fact of, of the gender diversity, the racial diversity of having, you know, a strong female captain who's Latina, who's not, who's not Caucasian, who is able to just take the reins, uh, just as effectively as Archer and to have her play a role in the admittedly few episodes that she's in is very important. And as with everything that we say on warp five, it's a shame that we, we didn't get to see more of it because I feel like that's always our refrain because especially in season four, you're having all of these seeds being laid down and it'd been really interesting to see the Romulan war and the, the role that, Erica Hernandez will obviously play. And I know in the books, she plays a huge role. And seeing how A.G. Robinson could have been alluded to more in the past and how that story kind of interwove together, I think speaks a lot to how diverse the, uh, how rich and diverse the universe of Enterprise can be in terms of storytelling. And A.G. Robinson and, and Erica Hernandez are just two data points in a much larger um universe of characters that can could be drawn upon wouldn't it have been neat say like in maybe season seven where they're rolling out like another nx ship it would have been like the nx03 and it would have been the nx03 would it be the refit would it would it have the refit secondary hull norm i would have liked to have seen that i'm a big fan of that of that particular build but um i think that came didn't that come after the romulan war I mean, you know, I think Christopher Jones, who was who was a previous host on Warp Five, has a great line. He says, "In Manny Cotto's magic bag of hindsight, right? So everything right. that was supposed to happen, if Enterprise continued, right? So Shran was going to be a, a permanent member. They were going to refit. They were going to literally put on a uh, not a sausage section, a star drive section to the bottom of the NX01, the Romulan War, all these elements." You know, I I think that's true. I think Doug Drexler had mentioned that it was probably after the war they were going to do that refit. But, you know, I think just to go back to, to the original point, it's really interesting to see the moment in Star Trek when it goes just beyond one ship. Because so much of TOS is on one ship. I think a lot of it was budgetary concerns. It's one ship. They have ambassadors come on and they go on other planets. But... It's rare that they have interactions with on a much larger fleet scale. And I think with Enterprise, they have the ability to have that environment where there's a lot of overlap. And you see that in other series, sure, like DS9. But I think Enterprise uh, was able to do that in a way that fans, I think, either miss on first viewing or don't appreciate uh, as much as I think they should. Um, but I think... Like I said, I'm a huge fan of Erica Hernandez. I think I, I just wish we saw more of her, and I think she's a strong enough character to really anchor her own series, but definitely a huge story arc in later seasons. I would have liked to have seen one of the ships, maybe not the the NX-03, as I was, I was talking about just earlier, but I would have liked to have seen something aside from the nebula that was named after AG. You know, like maybe like a shuttlecraft or something significant like that that uh that just kind of like brought that touchstone back because again we are digging deep down into Manny Cotto's bag of hindsight and magic bag of hindsight that's true and i do think that Erica Hernandez would have played a pivotal role in the beginning of the Romulan war and when i say that not that she caused it but the NX02 
would have probably been patrolling that particular sector of space as the NX-01 was expanding its mission. And there would have been great opportunity for bounce back, especially if Tripp maintained his position as chief engineer on the NX-02. And there, there could have been a great use of him as a crossover character, as they did, um, really only that one time. But in terms of Erica Hernandez maybe sitting in their conference room with Tripp talking about what she and Archer used to do in the NX-01 program, going through those memories in some type of mentor-ish way with with Trip and and that would that would grow him as a character it would grow her as a character learning what Trip learned from Archer again it yes we throw out the gosh the the possibility of season five and beyond but I'm glad that they actually did introduce a female captain this early in the in the formation of Starfleet because it was pre-Federation and that means that Gene's original vision of where he wanted to go was being represented here in Enterprise and where he didn't have that chance in the original series. Can you imagine if Trip was was a crossover character and whenever he had a crossover between the NX01 and the NX02, he had to like they had to like do that whole maneuver where he has to go in a spacesuit and shoot the, he literally has to do that every time. He has to go across that the uh, the wire the spacewalk the, the spacewalk every time. <laughs> they couldn't do it the normal way they could he couldn't just you know normally get on board the ship they would have to do the spacewalk every time i think it'd be oh yeah uh, that's, that's just hernandez trolling trip that's all <laughs> you know so there's, there's nothing actually really wrong with like the, the the warp field it's stable you know it's just hey you know you want to get back to your own ship you're gonna have to you're gonna have to walk across some broken glass to do it you know because i'm you're keep i'm keeping you on my ship so i have i have one final question for you as we're doing final thoughts here will if we had a chance to see another captain because we saw AG and we saw Erica Hernandez. And I know how important um, just the uh, the ability to be able to represent different ethnicities and different genders. What would your next captain have been? In the Enterprise universe? Mm-hmm. Mm. Because I really do love that picture that you posted just recently on Facebook where you had an Indian version of Captain America. Oh yeah, the Sikh version of Captain Sikh America. Captain America, yeah. Uh, um, who is just—if you ever watch interviews with him—he's just a, such a nice, funny guy, and the this you know the reaction he gets from people just walking around is so fantastic. And he just—he just loves being able to do that, and it's important. Representation matters, right? You had Nichelle Nichols saying, uh, "Martin Luther King told her you need to stay on the show." Then you had Whoopi Goldberg saying, "Nichelle Nichols told her your your role is important," and right. it. it it's as true as it ever was. So in, in the Enterprise universe, I think there has never been an openly LGBT character on Star Trek. And I think and Malcolm Reed was supposed to be, yes. Malcolm Reed was alluded to, and I think uh, Anthony, not Anthony, um, oh, I'm totally just blanking on <laughs> uh, Malcolm Reed's, uh, his real name. Um, oh, Dominic Keating. Dominic Keating, that's right. Uh, Dominic mm-hmm. Keating has kind of said in interviews on conventions here and there that, yeah, I kind of played him gay, but I kind of didn't play him gay. And, He's kind of vacillated between the two, but I think he's definitely in- intimated that that was possibly one direction they was going to take the character, but that that ultimately they backed away from that. I think for me that would definitely be uh, in porn one an LGBT character, uh, especially maybe you know someone that has a, a really they really commit to that. It's a really three dimensional character. 
that they commit to. Uh, you know, in terms of ethnicity, I think, you know, there, there's, there's a whole host of opportunities, Asian American, but also I think it would be interesting to really see a captain who, especially in the enterprise universe, I think there's, there's, there's opportunity here who isn't from America per se, or who isn't, you know, either an African American or Asian American, or they grew up in, in in a place where English was a dominant language, or they grew up in a place where the Commonwealth countries wasn't wasn't a big thing. I guess I think in the Star Trek universe, there's a very heavy Anglo American focus for for obvious reasons. But it would be really interesting to see, especially in the early versions of a global Earth Starfleet, elements of 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 of, of of a Starfleet that it's not necessarily Anglo-American in its focus, that you have a captain who English, he can speak it. He's he, or he or she can speak it, but his native tongue or, or her native tongue is different. It's Arabic or it's Russian or it's any other language. Right. But they are still part of this earth Starfleet. And I would have loved to have seen a ship that's not necessarily named after a civil war battle or a revolutionary war battle. It would, it would be a completely different cultural touchstone. It was important to, for Algerian history or Russian history that this ship was named this and it wasn't named like the Antietam. It wasn't named like the Gettysburg or the Yorktown, right? I think Saratoga. Saratoga. Yeah. I think it been really interesting to see that type of diversity and Enterprise, since it's the first pre-Federation Starfleet, I think it really had the opportunity to do that. So I would have liked to have seen, you know, an LGBT character that is that isn't American or doesn't hail from uh, Australia or the UK per se, but they're they're hailing from a completely different part of the world, but they're still part of this global Starfleet. What I loved about Star Trek 2009 is that it started the movie off with Captain Rabot. Oh, he's of such, the USS Kelvin. Such a great role. Such a great. He would have been a great con. Right. Oh, yes, yes, so good. And but what I loved about that is that it didn't start with a conventional Anglo. American or European American captain. And that set the tone for me that they are taking Gene's vision quite literally, the diversity of what you see on a starship. Because, you know, Rabot was of a certain ethnicity, uh, and his first officer was Sam Kirk, and, you know, he was Anglo, but he wasn't in command. So, that's just something that I always find refreshing when they're doing Star Trek right, when they're thinking about the value that Gene Roddenberry was trying to impart in his writing and in the spirit of, of what he was trying to do back in 1966 through 69. And that's, again, what I love about the attempt to further that vision using Erica Hernandez in season four. I think Manny Cotto got that, and I think that he understood what the fans wanted to see not just bridging season four as the spiritual successor or predecessor, actually, of the original series, but bringing back what the fans truly love about Star Trek, and that is the vision of humanity being this giant ball of equality. And that's what I felt was most important about seeing her. It wasn't so much about how she informed Archer or how they evolved as characters, it was how she as a character and her role in this particular series, if it continued, would have been the progenitor archetype 
for the first female captain that would project to your Captain Garrett's of the world, your Catherine Janeways of the world. And now you got to see what we always promised all of our fans in Enterprise, the very first of, quote unquote, the very first captain, the very first starship, the very first meeting with this, the very first meeting with that, and now the very first female captain that is also um, of a certain ethnicity. So it was so important for them to craft this character. And again, it was just unfortunate that we didn't get a chance to see her become part of the tapestry, the overall tapestry of this 2151 to 2161 era where Starfleet was just this, this growing organization uh, that became the coalition. So th- those were for my final thoughts about, uh, about her and about how I felt a- that we had that great opportunity, even if it were just for a little bit. Yeah. I, I can only echo your, your comments on that just to, to bring it all back home. AG, Erica, they all provide a view of, of Starfleet that's more expansive than just the NX-01. I think when, when Star Trek can leave the bridge of just that one ship or that one place that they're on, it's always it's always a good thing. It informs how the captain is going to act in that situation because oftentimes he's intera- he or she is interacting with those characters that are outside of that window, that, that bubble. It also provides just greater elements for storytelling looking back in the past the the really insightful flashbacks to archer's past through ag uh we learn about you know his love for erica and the fact that he's married to starfleet they're both married to starfleet i actually forgot to bring this up is that they both initially decided to to break up is archer becomes her spirit officer but at the same time she tells him you know if i wasn't even if you were never promoted I know that you're married to Starfleet just like I am, that they're committed to duty, they're committed to their responsibility, they know that the relationship wouldn't work. So that adds another dynamic too, that perhaps in a different life, could they have settled down? Who knows, right? But in this in this circumstance, their first and foremost obligation was always to the mission, always to Starfleet. And it adds a human perspective that's echoed later on in other captains who have to balance family and duty to Starfleet. So I just think overall... It's great that these characters were there. Uh, you know, Archer is obviously the thing that kind of brings them all together. But you learn a lot about the overall universe by having these other characters there. So you just wish you saw more of them. Absolutely, it, the the richness and the tapestry that that Enterprise could have been is going to be the epitaph of this show. <laughs> Basically, <laughs> yeah. I feel like we have well, often the hardest job, Norm, because we really just have four seasons. Like TOS has three seasons and they have like six movies tng ds9 voyage have seven seasons tng has like all the movies like we just have four seasons that's it and oftentimes you're just kind of like wow like where do we go off from just being cut off right there right it, it makes it makes it interesting don't get me wrong i, I love talking about it but oftentimes you're just like wow we're literally just like left with half a glass to work with right half a glass Glass is half full, but it's still half a glass. But it's still half a glass full of Romulan ale. That's true. So, That's true. You know, so we we at least have that. Well, well, it's been. I mean, it that was a lot of fun talking about that because it's a subject matter that again, it's it's something that's there. We really rarely ever talk about like all of the uh, additional characters that have graced Enterprise and could have been in season five. And uh, I liked I liked calling them the Archer Rands. I think it's kind of fun. It's fun, uh, and you know they we're, we're all about the, the puns here. Yeah, 
That's right. We are about the puns. I got a good pun, but I'll save it for another show. Okay. Uh, but this isn't the only topic that we've been talking about here on Trek FM this past week. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. Set this movie at the end of the five-year mission. Skip ahead five years, you know, kind of like Dark Knight or whatever, and then Mm -hmm. say, okay, we've had all these adventures, blah, 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 and now we're at the end. We're about to go home, you know, and it's been, you know, a fun time was had by all. Earl Grey. Again, you know, because it's January, my ship was shot beyond the bounds of normal interstellar travel <laughs> to the center of the galaxy, but we were back in time for tea. The orb. They're they're not even right. thinking about it at this point. Okay, how yeah, do we well, exactly. start the resistance? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do we do all this? Yeah. Because they have become comfortable with where they are and thinking yeah. that they're doing all they can, and yet right. we know, as the audience, that they're not. To the journey! I want you to say right now in front of our our friends, okay, and in front of me and the Lord Almighty, okay. what is your favorite season? Okay, this isn't the favorite season. I want you to tell me what your favorite <laughs> season is. <laughs> Daniel, Daniel, and Darren, promise we won't ever be like this. The ready room. So what's the deal? You know, does Tom have a dad we don't know about? Apparently. Because who was, was this guy that he was remembering yeah, as his know, dad? Was that Nick Lacarno's dad? <laughs> that was Nick Lacarno's dad, yes. Commentary, Trek stars. But I mean, here's the question, John. If, if you're living Fight Club, then, you know, we have to ask, if you could fight anyone, who would you fight? William Shatner. All right. Literary Treks. The main storyline here is the battle for the Vulcan soul. They are one of the most logical races, and yet they have an intensely spiritual aspect to them. Axanar, the official podcast. You were there. Mm. How long did we wait for them to try and reach that phone? Oh, there? man, it was, it, was, it was at least as long as the Enterprise penetrating V'ger's <laughs> outer shield to getting into the actual machine core. The 602 Club. So, as far as the realism question is concerned... Um, whether or not it's the right thing to do. It's the Marvel way to do it. I mean, I think that's the that's the defining difference between Marvel and DC. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So when you have some time, please check out these shows and find out what we're talking about on Trek FM in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. Now, if you're an Apple user, please do us a favor and hit that subscribe button because that helps us out immensely when it comes to the visibility of our show and all the shows on Trek FM. And it makes it easier for other listeners that are getting their shows from iTunes to find the show as they search all of their podcasts. And if you like what you hear on Warp 5 or any of the Trek FM shows, please, please, please leave us a rating. We like five stars. We'll take your honest opinion, but we know your honest opinion will be five. (laughs) So that helps us greatly increase our visibility. Hint, hint, hint. Uh, it, it, it helps us with our visibility for iTunes and to get those new listeners on board. We love having new listeners. It helps us further the discussion, and it just gives us general greater popularity when people are looking for all of the Warp 5 shows on iTunes. Now, if you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find all of our shows here on Trek FM on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and, of course, you can always stream and download the MP3 file 
for all of these shows and previous shows from the website and grab the RSS link there as well. Now, one of the things we like focusing on here on Warp 5 and on Trek FM as a network is that we are a show run by fans for fans, and we are funded through an incredible program called Patreon. Will, can you tell us a little bit about Patreon? And I know that you helped uh, us through Patreon, and that's how you got involved with the network. Sure. So Patreon is just a way to support uh, projects or art or any type of endeavor that you uh, that you, you like seeing more of. So you, you know, Patreon is a system that can support music or movies or uh, works of art or literature, podcasts in this case. So Trek FM uh, gets donations through Patreon. You can set a monthly amount of whatever, uh, whatever dollar amount you'd like, and you could set it to be, you can change it from month to month. And it's a great way for you to stay connected to us to help us support because we're solely uh, listener funded, but at the same time, you get really great perks at different levels. And that's just a way of us saying thank you and for us to extend the hand in terms of we want your feedback, we want your interaction because your interaction is what makes uh, Trek FM so great is that we love hearing from you and you have all the listeners have such great ideas. So that's how I eventually got involved with the network is that, you know, I became a Patreon donor because I just really love listening to all the programs I wanted to help out. And I got in at some really interesting perk levels uh, to contribute in terms of content and talk more about the development of shows behind the scenes. And that's how eventually I got to, to where I'm at right now. And that's something that's available to, to prospective listeners that want to donate, that want to, to have a bigger role. So we have such great content uh, in terms of uh, getting podcasts before they're officially released, getting a sneak peek, um, having some input in terms of uh, our content development uh, sometimes we also release uh, really neat wallpapers that are unique only to Trek FM donors. So it's it's very much uh, an all access and a, a backstage pass in a lot of ways to what goes behind the development of, of all our shows. So Patreon's been great because it's literally it's been the venue for me being a listener to be to me being a contributor and kind of sharing my thoughts with everyone. So it's just a great, great egalitarian tool for participation, really. Yes, and um, I couldn't stress that more. And I think it's a fantastic opportunity for all of our listeners to try and get involved. And you can do you can do that by visiting Patreon.com/trekfm. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com/trekfm. Please take a look, and we would love to have you as part of our team. So again, that's Patreon.com/trekfm. And thanks always to our associate producer here on Warp Five, Floyd Dorsey. You now Floyd is one of our supporters. Through the network, through Patreon.com, he chose to be an associate producer for Warp 5, and I can't thank him enough for all of his support on Patreon and on the Babel Conference, where he participates and shared his ideas with all the fans and listeners of Warp 5 and Trek FM. And the Babel Conference is our Facebook listeners page, and you can find that on the B-A-B-E-L Conference. Just type that in your search engine on Facebook. And that is, again, a listener's page. So let us know if you need access to that, and we can make sure that that happens for you. If you would like to get in touch with us here at Trek FM, you can always find us on trekfm slash contact and look in the sidebar on the show page or go to speakpipe.com slash trekfm and please leave us a voicemail or a subspace signal as you prefer. You can also contact us through Twitter at Trek FM, Facebook, facebook.com slash trekfm, 
And as I mentioned earlier, the Babel Conference. Type the Babel Conference into the search field on Facebook or go to our website at Trek FM and click Discussion on the menu bar. Now, Will, we've talked a lot about, about your involvement and how you're part of Patreon and how you are a huge supporter of Warp 5 and the network, but please tell all of our listeners how they can get in contact with you if they would like to get in touch with you about content or trying to help share their ideas with you as our content development coordinator. Sure, you can always tweet me at at will underscore win, spelled N-G-U-Y-E-N. I'm always in the Babel Conference, always talking about great things, Trek and non-Trek alike, which is the great thing about our network. And uh, you can also just uh, also find me on Warp 5 every week. So always love to hear your feedback and let me know what you think. Awesome, Will. Thanks so much. So before we go, we'd like to ask everyone to please support our sponsor who helps us bring Warp 5 and all of our shows to you each week. And that sponsor is Audible.com. Now, Audible is a great way for you to read all the books that you've always wanted to read but never thought you'd have time for. As a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice along with a 30-day trial just to see how great Audible is. I love Audible. The other day I was cleaning the house and I said, you know what? You I gave me a book, book on Audible the, just the other day. That's right. And because it's an audiobook, you can write your next article, Will, or you can plan the next content development show, and then you can also listen to the book at the same time. Basically, the advantage of using an audiobook is to multitask. If you like multitasking, if you have long trips in the car or on the train or if you're a commuter to work. And as a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice along with a 30-day trial just to see how great the service is. Because sometimes you just don't have time to get to these books that you just need to make time for sometimes. So go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today. That's audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And we thank Audible for supporting Warp 5 and the Trek FM network. And don't forget to check out Enterprise in Space. Now, this is a project of the nonprofit National Space Society that will design and launch an eight-foot orbiter and return this craft to Earth. The NSS Enterprise orbiter will carry more than 100 student-designed science experiments into space, and you can help make it happen. And I can't quite guarantee that this won't be a V'ger scenario, but that remains to be seen. So, you just as had to far throw as we that know, in there, is, huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, you got to go TOS, right? And they're going to be like, oh, man, should I even donate to this thing? I don't want this thing coming back years later. <laughs> yeah, so really think about those, those submissions. So visit enterpriseinspace.org to find out more and get your seat on the mission. And finally, if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can always find me here on the network as the host of Warp 5. Actually, now as the co-host for Warp 5 because Will has joined the command structure of our conference room. Or you can find me on the Babel Conference, our Facebook listener, listeners page. You can also find me on Twitter at Norman Lau. That's N-O-R-M-A-N-L-A-O. And I'm also a proud supporter of Alec Peters and the Axonar Project. You can find me on the dedicated Axonar fan group page on Facebook. And lastly, and I love saying this because I mean it so much, I'm a proud supporter of Trek FM through Patreon. This is how I started with the network. I started supporting them through that service, and it has opened up a variety of opportunity for me and I have met so many great people and have made so many great friendships with Will, with Matthew Rushing, the host for the 602 Club, with Christopher Jones, with just so many other great hosts and friends and fans of the network. And I couldn't have done it without starting with Patreon first. And that allowed me to become the associate producer of four shows here on the network, Warp 5, The Orb, The 602 Club, and Axonar, the official Axonar podcast. So thank you for joining us in the conference room, and we'll see you next time on Warp 5. 